Welcome to At Home and Abroad with Harrison Walker. Join us each week as we follow our curiosity, diving deep into the familiar and the foreign. Reach beyond your front door as we uncover new perspectives, explore intriguing ideas, and have real conversations with the best guests. Ready for something different? Let's get started. On August 6, 2022, peace was found in the most unlikely of places, if only for a moment. In Mali, a landlocked country of Western Africa, youths from two communities, the Tessalit and the Aguahawk, came together to play a game of football. Organized by the United Nations Multidimensional Integrated Stabilization Mission in Mali, 30 young men from Tessalit traveled 90 kilometers to Aguahawk to take on the other young people in a football match. These two communities had been scarred by conflict between rebel militias and the government, and this had also been compounded by violent attacks by Islamist extremists. Security was of the utmost importance. Despite the shadow of the ongoing violence, the friendly match was a success. These young men of Mali came together on an equal playing field to play as they would have normally done in more peaceful times. A Tessalit representative said that the organization of this match proves that the efforts of youth are important in promoting peace and strengthening social cohesion. Sports and cultural events are better channels for bringing communities together, especially for us young people. A member of the Aguahawk community perhaps said it best, hope does not need great means to enlighten hearts. Sadly, the conflict has intensified in this region. The United Nations mission is rapidly departing the two camps in the Kadal region, Tessalit and Aguahawk. Violent attacks have increased and with many peacekeepers injured in the retreat. What a terrible shame that the situation has deteriorated. Mm -hmm. This football match reminds me of the Christmas truce of 1914, when British and German soldiers paused their fighting on Christmas Eve to meet in no man's land to sing Christmas carols, to exchange chocolate and sausages and play football. Yeah, it was a respite for those poor young guys fighting a war in the mud and cold, perhaps not fully understanding how on earth they had ended up in such a nightmare. We have no shortage of conflict today, which truly breaks my heart, and I know yours too. Peace has been a dream for humanity for so long, but at times it seems like one of the hardest things to achieve, sometimes even near impossible. But notice how I said near impossible. I did. Ever the optimist, Harris. Yeah, I think we have to be. The alternative is not so appealing, is it? No, but there is raging conflict in so many hotspots around the world perhaps most notably in Ukraine and in Gaza post the October 7th invasion of Israel. Mm -hmm. But of course, conflict does not just happen on the battlefield, does it? That's for sure. Conflict can occur anytime or place, really. Consider the workplace. Mm -hmm. According to the program of negotiation at Harvard Law School, if you work with others, sooner or later, you will almost inevitably face the need for conflict resolution. When we encounter conflict, it can make us uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. Some experience tightness in the chest, a nervous stomach, clammy hands. Most of us do not enjoy engaging in a situation where there's the possibility of a negative outcome. Too true. It can be very nasty. Right. We feel like we're under threat, so we experience an evolutionary response. Our brains are sending us, you know, that message, danger, danger. Mm -hmm. It's a protective mechanism. According to Diane Musho Hamilton, in her article for the Harvard Business Review, Calming your brain during conflict, practicing mindfulness is a great way of managing your physiological response to conflict. That's interesting. Mm -hmm. Diane is an internationally recognized mediator and facilitator and the author of Everything is Workable, a Zen Approach to Conflict Resolution. 
She says that mindfulness allows us to override the conditioned nervous system with conscious awareness instead of attacking or recoiling and later justifying our reactions. We can learn to stay present, participate in regulating our own nervous system, and eventually develop new, more free, and helpful ways of interacting. It's tough to access our Zen, though, when conflict (laughs) is in our face, Walker. It can be, but Diane says that first you need to recognize that you're being triggered and be committed to engage in the practice. Yeah, that would be pretty important, I would think. Yes, then we have to forget the story. The story? Mm Mm-hmm, the story we tell ourselves about the conflict. Usually, there's a lot of judgment taking place. Try to step out of that, she says. She explains, but we must be willing to forget the story just for a minute because there is a feedback loop between our thoughts and our body. If the negative thoughts persist, so do the stressful hormones. It isn't that we're wrong, but we will be far more clear in our perceptions when the nervous system has relaxed. Okay, so be mindful of our thoughts and interrupt that loop between the thoughts and our body's reaction. Got it. Exactly. Then focus on the reaction you're having in your body and breathe. Okay, breathing can really take it all down a notch. Of course, breathing is always important, but it has to be purposeful. The point is to drop cortisol and adrenaline. Rhythmic breathing really can help focus the mind and calm the nervous system. Like what I call a square breath. Inhale for a count of four, hold for a count of four, exhale for four, hold for four. It does wonders. This will give your mind and body a bit of space to then be able to react to the conflict from a more balanced and measured perspective. You can see it clearly for what it is and hopefully move forward to a positive resolution. And conflict, Harris, is not all bad. No? No. According to Dr. Sherry Campbell, author of Loving Yourself, The Mastery of Being Your Own Person and Success Equations, A Path to an Emotionally Wealthy Life, conflict gives us the chance to speak up when we might not have otherwise. I could see that. It can draw issues into the light and force you to deal with them. Yeah. In Dr. Campbell's words, most people do not get what they want because they do not say what they want. Mm. Conflict provides an opportunity to verbalize our needs and to get them met. Makes good sense to me. Mm-hmm. When we're in the throes of a confrontation, we can be caught up in our own needs and wants. But Dr. Campbell points out that we can also learn as well. She says conflict is incredibly useful as a creative fine-tuning instrument to our own ideas. In hearing another person's perception, it helps to mold and clarify our own, either making us more clear and committed to our own original position, or the conflict will open our eyes to new perspectives on our ideas. Cool, huh? Yeah. And perhaps most importantly, the more we expose ourselves to conflict, the better we become at handling it. Well, it really is unavoidable in life, so it's important to flex that muscle. Exactly. It's thought many of us detest conflict and avoid it at all costs. Sometimes, though, it does help to have an unbiased third party to help find some middle ground. We have to be very grateful to those individuals who are willing to take on such critically important challenges, these mediators who help to promote peace and resolve conflict. Well, at a time when conflict is dominating the headlines and our conversation too today, Mm -hmm. we are grateful for the opportunity to speak with an expert in the field of conflict and resolution. We are so excited to introduce Lynn Bevan. Lynn is a Toronto-based lawyer and is considered Canada's authority on employment and pay equity and a pioneer in the field of conflict resolution through investigation and mediation, primarily of human rights issues. Much of her later work was international in scope, including investigation and resolution of sectarian issues in Belfast, Northern Ireland. She is the author of two best-selling books on equity issues and of many other publications. 
an active and award-winning volunteer, frequent public speaker, and she has hosted public radio programs on legal issues. Welcome to At Home and Abroad, Lynn. Thank you, Heather. It's so lovely to have you here. So you have a really interesting backstory and a passion for social justice that has given you firsthand experience in conflict and resolution in a variety of contexts. Would you mind sharing with us a little bit of that personal journey? Oh, for sure. You know, uh, my background did not lead me naturally to become a lawyer. No one in my family thought that that was necessarily the route to go. Full of teachers, full of medical people. And then then I met somebody who inspired me, a very early woman to go to law school. And I think it made a big difference. And I thought, naively, (laughs) that uh, through law, I could fulfill this commitment I had to fairness, actually. Mm -hmm. I didn't know the words social justice. Those words are more uh, recent. They mean a a lot of things to a lot of people. But I could see how the world wasn't necessarily fair. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I found my way. (laughs) I, I started by working at a poverty law clinic in law school. But then after I finished, I found myself at Canada's largest law firm, which was a business law firm. That worked for a while. And then I left and lived in Bali. Okay. That that was a good break because when I came back, I was asked by Justice Rosalia Bella to work on a royal commission on equality. And I thought, that's it. This is what I've always been meant to do. And very quickly, I realized that employees in conflict with their colleagues or managers have so few choices. Uh, the employees are afraid, mm-hmm. uh, either because they uh, power imbalances, job need. People need their jobs. They don't go mm-hmm. to work to get harassed. Exactly. So what happened? You know, of course, they tolerated it. They made trouble. They quit. They sometimes brought complaints externally. This is very costly to everyone. And often life-changing for the employees. Right. So I came up with protocols because I realized that protocols were missing in most workplaces to allow internal dispute resolution. And it was in almost everyone's interest to keep it inside. But then I saw that you can't resolve conflict unless you know the facts. So I created this investigation, became uh, an accredited mediator, helped found conflict resolution organizations here in Canada. And then, as you said, you know, I became an investigator and mediator all around the world, including in Belfast, um, following the peace accord, all over the U.S., Japan. And so, again, it took a while. But I finally found a way to make my legal training work for me. Mm -hmm. As well as adding so much good and protocol to follow when you are are attempting to resolve a dispute or conflict on on the scale of the boardroom or on a larger scale as well, like as in 
Belfast. In fact, it did operate in most, but you've, you've picked up on something which I think is really key. Where does conflict resolution start? Mm. If the boardroom doesn't buy into it, nothing is going to change. I recall like yesterday when I, I was in Japan and I was for the same company who was all over the world. And I said, you'll never convince me that investigating the same guy three times is in your company's interest. He said it is. He gets the job done like nobody else. So that was a decision made at the top Mm -hmm. that we can just pay off people. We can bring someone like me over to look into it, yeah, find out what happened, but at the end, we need him. Right. But most cases, that wasn't the case. People realized it's so costly not to have a resolution to ongoing conflict. Right. So sometimes in some situations, people will turn a blind eye to perhaps what's going on um, because their skills are so needed. And yeah. try and find an, an alternate sure. avenue to resolving the conflict, whether it's, you know, a settlement or. Usually it was moving that guy. <laughs> right. Him. Moving them around. Yes, because I had investigated him once in Canada, once in the U.S. And he actually changed his name. Oh, you're kidding. So by the third time, I didn't even realize until I got there. That it was the same person. Same person. Oh my gosh. Well, he must have been very valuable to that organization to put themselves at risk because when there exactly. is conflict, there is risk. In fact, that's what happened. They finally got sued because in the US, unlike here, you can sue civilly for harassment or breach of human rights. Mm-hmm. And the settlements are enormous. So that gets most companies undivided attention eventually. Yes, eventually. When you're when you're hit in the pocketbook, it gets people to to pay attention. So tell me, how does a mediator like yourself bring two or more parties to the point at which they're willing to work towards the resolution of their conflict? You know, I was I think that is such an incredible question because I had to tease it apart in order to answer it. It's a biggie. So thank you. It's not only a biggie. It's a question of understanding what mediation is. We used to joke as mediators, the magic of mediation, but it's true. Because people come to mediators because they either are required by the courts, I'll come back to that, Mm -hmm. or they say, what's happening in my life is not sustainable. Right. So I need somebody to help us get through this. So mediators have no power except persuasion, Mm. assistance in communications. They have huge negotiation skills because they are listening to two sides and trying to find the common threads. Mm -hmm. And I often made a visual, because I am very visual, of two ovals 
that had just a tiny bit of overlap, if you can visualize that, two side-by-side ovals. And I put the common points in that little point of intersection. And it caused people often to disregard all the things they didn't agree on. Mm-hmm. It, because that is what a, a mediator does. So it's the parties who get to mediation. Sometimes they're required by the court, and therefore they don't come as willingly. <laughs> right. But it's required. If you want to keep on with your lawsuit, you have to try. Mm-hmm. And it's the success rate is enormous. Is it? In, for example, family law, employment issues, okay, etc., where it's less successful and therefore it was taken out of the system. Insurance cases, uh, big commercial cases, and I won't go into why that's the case. So, you know, this, this is just a case of the mediator standing by until somebody says, could you help us? Mm-hmm. And being that impartial voice. Being that neutral voice, I think, is really the word I also like to use. Mm-hmm. Yes, we don't take sides. We can't give advice. We cannot say to them, look, let me share what you said, unless they agree, if it's in a private session. A lot of people don't realize how bound the whole process is by trust. Because when parties break out of a joint session, they end up going into separate rooms. It's like shuttle diplomacy. The mediator goes back and forth and finds out things. And then sometimes I would say, are you okay if I share that with the other side? And if the answer was no, I would explore why not. And I would explain why it could really make a difference. Mm-hmm. So it, it's a, a fascinating process because it's private. Mm-hmm. It's confidential. And yet, uh, it works. It's powerful. That's why people go, by the way. Yeah. Because it's private. It's confidential. Courts are open. Courts can have strangers there, media there. Mm-hmm. So these private dispute resolution processes like negotiations through mediators or arbitrators, but arbitrators are different. They're like judges. At the end of the day, they get to make a decision. Who's right? Who's wrong? Right. It's so fascinating to me to have this insight into mediation because of what's playing out on the world stage right now. So we know that, like, for example, Qatar was sort of the mediating body between Israel and Hamas to negotiate the humanitarian pauses that we're seeing in exchanges. And so if you extrapolate perhaps it really is all the same. You're still looking at these two or more parties and then the mediator in the middle being that neutral party trying to to bring everybody together. And trusted party. And trusted, yes. That is the key thing, isn't it? It really is. I mean, Qatar could talk to both, which is fascinating, but we'll leave that. I know it is fascinating. Maybe we should talk about that on another episode, Lynn. (laughs) 
<laughs> Maybe. <laughs> or offline. Or offline yeah. later. Or I can I can direct you to people who can <laughs> who can chat with me about it. Okay. So in your experience, why do you think we become so entrenched in our conflicts and resistant to finding those solutions to the issues? I think people are served by conflict. Okay. If you are trying to explain your life's journey and something happened to you, an unwanted divorce, uh, a job separation, a conflict with a family member, hanging on to the difference, the conflict, the dispute, helps you explain to yourself why you made certain choices. There is a whole side of mediation, which I personally found the most interesting, called narrative mediation. And that is exactly what it sounds like. What's your narrative? And how are you relying on it? What is the story you're telling yourself? And how is that limiting you? Mm -hmm. So that is one reason, you know, so... You think about a divorce couple, one won't or both won't let it go. Keeping that dispute alive is a way to get back at each other. You know, even if it's got a huge personal and financial cost. I once did an estates mediation for the courts. There were seven lawyers representing seven beneficiaries. Oh, my gosh. Very, very small estate. And... They could not agree. The siblings could not agree. So at one point, I asked permission because I had to and got all the lawyers together along with the clients and said, I just calculated your collective hourly rate and sort of did a comparison. They were fighting over things like mom's favorite teacup because it had nothing to do with the real issue, which was what did the will say? What was allowed? It was all those old stories. So I hope that gives a a perspective. And the other reason is I think people are afraid of change. Yes. You know that old saying, the devil you know is better than the devil you don't. Mm -hmm. And I think many people, even if it's they're in a situation which they say they don't want to continue in, Say, but if I let go of this, where will I go? What's next? It's a way to explain your life. And that also works on the world stage. But the most important thing is I don't think we are exposed to, I'll call it the other, enough. So the narrative that we have is the narrative that we were taught right, or that we, we experience on a day-to-day level. Work helps that because workplaces are in a big city like Toronto are so diverse mm-hmm. now, but most of them are privileged diverse. Yes. I have done many cases in factories where nobody but the supervisor speaks English. That gives tremendous power to the supervisor. 
Mm-hmm. Because those people don't have the same options to quit and go get another job because they don't have the language skills or other things that we take for granted. Right. Diversity really matters, but income inequality is what drives the problem. Right. Sorry to be on a downer, but conflict is not exactly a a happy topic, but you know, because it's 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 difficult and it's challenging. The point that you make about change is 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 really critical. I think people do hang on to things that are not serving them sometimes too long because they're afraid of what's on the other side of that. And uh and yeah, the key is really opening our minds and our experiences. Yes. I, you know, what I'm so thrilled about in a city like Toronto, there are some community mediation groups free. They they are called uh, exactly that, community mediation services. They're all run by social services agencies like St. Stephen's House or the neighborhood group community services. And they offer free mediation. So these are for people who are low income or can't afford to hire lawyers. They bring everybody who wants to, because remember, mediators can't force it. Mm-hmm. So parties to come. Could be a neighbor, a landlord, a family member. But these people have finally got to the point where they're saying, this dispute doesn't serve me. In mm-hmm. fact, it is so life-limiting. So I want to really promote that today. Not everybody can afford to hire a lawyer and pay for half the cost of a mediator. That's exceptional that the, these resources are out there. I would hope that not just in in the Toronto area, but we will put some links to some local resources in our in our show notes for this episode. For sure. That is something which I support. I have done free mediation all my career because it is a skill that everyone needs at a time in their life of conflict. Absolutely. Well, Lynn, there is so much conflict in the world today, even beyond what we read in the daily headlines. And not surprisingly, there's also much despair and apathy that peace can actually even be obtained. I'm curious, do you think that we have collectively improved our approach to conflict resolution since the turn of the 20th century? Oh, Lauren, the war baton, as I call it, is constantly being passed around. You know, I looked it up yesterday just to confirm. But today, Afghanistan, Ethiopia, Libya, Mali, Myanmar, Yemen, Sudan, South Sudan, Syria are all in civil wars. Yeah, the list goes on. But the problem is, for most of us in the advantaged world, these are just places on a map. We know nothing about the lives of the people there. And for those of us who do care, the inability to really relate is a source of despair. And I think it leads to apathy. So when when you say, have we collectively approached? Yes, I think so. Uh, Even if we carry on our lives in such a small sphere where we seldom encounter a world of real conflict as I described for those countries, 
they're just headlines to us. But the real problem is, I think, that headlines that you and I might read are not going to be the same ones as others read. Right. And in the digital age, we are having difficulty maintaining a common narrative. Right. You know, I, I think that doesn't bode well. And teaching kids, which I'm aware they are doing, which I'm thrilled about, how to actually identify misinformation, how to get to verifiable sources. But for most of us, we don't spend that much time looking into it. it since the turn of the 20th century, collectively, because you asked collectively, and there's always the question, who's the we in the collective? But after two world wars, the Western world mm -hmm. initially came together to create something called the League of Nations, and it grew into the United Nations. Is it a, an imperfect body? Oh, yes. Mm -hmm. And is it subject to political waves, as we're seeing yet again right now? Yes. But guess what? It's the only forum of its kind. So it, even if people aren't communicating well, at least they're listening or at least having to listen to each other when they're in that body. And on a national level here in Canada, we also need to have a common thread. We have to have a, a commitment to common values and a great threat to that right now, in my view, is the lack of political engagement. We're having the lowest voter turnouts every time. I'm glad you brought that topic up. So people don't vote for all kinds of reasons, including the belief that their uh, vote can't make a difference. Yes. First past the post is a problem. Or they don't trust politicians. They don't have somebody they're inspired by. Yes. Or who proves over and over again that they're willing to say something that isn't true mm -hmm. in order to Get that advance their political agenda. So if people don't vote, what happens? Well, a couple of things. It gives power to those who do vote to impose their agendas rather than what we would call cherished Canadian values. And, you know, I, I, I know that this can be addressed, but it takes a bit of activism and it takes a real commitment to public education mm -hmm. because that's where we can start those common, common values. And a little bit of time too. And time. It doesn't just happen overnight. That's for sure. If there was one message that you could share that might help us in our own relationships at work, at home, and in our communities that might help us better find peace, what would that be? I think, first of all, I know it sounds so trite, but I think we have to listen to each other a bit more. You know, people are very quick to dismiss someone else's view because they want to keep their own narrative alive. And someone with a different view challenges that narrative. Listening to other people's opinion actually helps you grow 
a lot of people think they are listening. They say they're listening, but what they're really thinking is about what they're going to say next, right? Or how they're going to convince the other side. So two other things. I say, get involved in something completely outside your comfort zone. Oh, I like that. And my number one suggestion is volunteer. Mm-hmm. You're going to run into people who are there because they also want to support it, but they come from different backgrounds. And probably most important, keep a sense of humor. <laughs> you know, really. And I want to quote something. Keep singing. I'm not going to sing. I promise. <laughs> you can if you want to. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, from South Pacific. And I'm going to read it because I want to say it correctly. You've got to be taught to hate and fear. You've got to be taught from year to year. It's got to be drummed in your dear little ear. You've got to be carefully taught. You've got to be taught to be afraid of people whose eyes are oddly made and people whose skin is a different shade. You've got to be carefully taught. You've got to be taught before it's too late, before you are six or seven or eight, to hate all the people your relatives hate. You have to be carefully taught. So let's teach the opposite. Thank you so much, Lynn. It's been so enlightening speaking with you today. Thank you, Lynn. That was very powerful. Thank you. Lynn is one of the most remarkable people I have ever met. She is such a sharp thinker with really thoughtful insight into conflict and its resolution. Perhaps most well-known for their hands-on efforts to promote peace globally in conflict hotspots are the United Nations peacekeepers. There are 97,000 UN peacekeepers from 120 different countries, and 70,000 of these are military. UN peacekeepers are civilians, police officers, and military personnel who have first served in their own country's army. They are commonly known as the Blue Berets or Blue Helmets for the recognizable blue headgear that they wear. Right. Today, the greatest number of Blue Helmets are from countries like Ethiopia, Pakistan, and Bangladesh. That's interesting. I didn't know that. I didn't either. And in fact, Asia, Africa, and Latin America contribute 90% of the peacekeeping force. Interesting. Why is that? Well, it's thought that countries in these areas have regional interest in resolving conflict. And there are also some other benefits too, like recognition and awareness, as well as some financial benefits. Blue helmets are paid according to their rank and salary scale. And then the country itself is reimbursed by the United Nations which is funded by every member of the UN. The US is the largest donor, contributing about $12.5 billion in 2021. Hmm. So what do UN peacekeepers actually do? Okay, well, in their words, the purpose of the UN peacekeeper is to promote stability, security, and peace processes, and to help countries navigate the difficult path from conflict to peace. A noble goal. Yeah. UN peacekeeping is based on the following three principles. First, consent of all the parties involved. Two, their own impartiality in the conflict. And three, the non-use of force, except in self-defense and defense of the mandate. Okay. UN peacekeeping actually began in 1948 with the involvement in the Arab-Israeli war. So it's not really that old of an institution. There must have been many missions over the years. Yeah, 72 in fact. There are 12 currently, including their presence in Mali. Of course, the UN peacekeepers are not the only groups offering aid to countries in the midst of conflict. One such group is the Nonviolent Peace Force, or NP for short, which is made up of unarmed civilian peacekeepers. I've never heard of them. 
I hadn't either. The NP states that their mission is to protect civilians in violent conflicts through unarmed strategies, build peace side by side with local communities, and advocate for the wider adoption of these approaches to safeguard human lives and dignity. They envision a worldwide culture of peace in which conflicts within and between communities and countries are managed through nonviolent means and are guided by principles of nonviolence, nonpartisanship, primacy of local actors, and civilian to civilian action. They've been active in the Ukraine. Peacekeepers do take on considerable risk. They are deployed in active war zones, areas of violent conflict. Not an easy job. Most definitely not. Since 1948, more than 3,500 peacekeepers, military and non-military have died in the line of duty. More than 300 have died in Mali alone since 2013 when the mission began. And because of the high number of peacekeepers who have lost their lives there, Al Jazeera has referred to it as the deadliest UN peacekeeping mission in the world. Terrible. Yeah. Particularly noteworthy was the tragic death of Brazilian United Nations diplomat and UN High Commissioner for Human Rights and the UN Special Representative of the Secretary General for Iraq, Sergio Vieira de Mello, on August 19, 2003, who was killed with 21 other UN staff and visitors when the UN headquarters in Baghdad was bombed by Al-Qaeda. They claimed that they assassinated Mello because he had assisted East Timor to become an independent state. In honor of this tragic event, August 19th is now recognized as World Humanitarian Day. What a loss. He was a greatly respected man, admired for his dedication to promoting peace. Mm -hmm. He had worked for the UN for 34 years, and that's truly a lifelong commitment. It certainly was. Mm -hmm. According to the UN Refugee Agency, Sergio was indeed the quintessential humanitarian activist and leader, the stuff of which legends are made. And for many, the memory of his dedication to the greater good will live on. I think most people would agree that finding the path to peace from conflict is a worthy goal. But sometimes it seems impossible. For example, in Mali, the UN operation there has worked to try to support a peace agreement with peacekeepers there for over 10 years. But the parties involved have not come together. In fact, as I said, the conflict has escalated, forcing a withdrawal of the peacekeepers. Yeah, this is discouraging and terrible for the innocent people caught in the crossfire. Sometimes there is no peace to be kept. Yeah, so peace is not always possible. And in fact, it has been noted that the presence of UN peacekeepers can lead to additional problems and complications beyond the major conflict at hand. There has been reported sexual exploitation and abuse of local women and girls, and perhaps we shouldn't be surprised that new diseases are introduced to some of the areas where peacekeepers are deployed. Like the cholera epidemic they experienced in Haiti. Exactly. The peacekeeping mission inadvertently introduced cholera into Haiti's most extensive water source in October 2010, after sewage leaked from a UN camp housing cholera-infected peacekeepers. This resulted in approximately 10,000 lost lives. It was a tragedy. And it could not have come at a worse time, really. No, because this happened on the coattails of the catastrophic earthquake of 2010, which shook the country to its core bringing about the death of hundreds of thousands of the country's people. In an interview with Richard Knox, Daniele Latania, an environmental engineer with Tufts University, said that part of the reason we think the outbreak grew so quickly was the Haitian population had no immunity to cholera. Something like when the Europeans brought smallpox to the Americas and it just burned through the native populations. Ultimately, 800,000 people had become sick. So you also mentioned that there is an issue with peacekeepers and sexual abuse. What can you tell me about this? 
Well, there's an ongoing matter of sexual relations with civilians and peacekeepers, which has resulted in numerous women left to raise children on their own, though the UN discourages sexual relations between UN workers and the people they're supposed to be protecting. In 2003, the UN Secretary General stressed the unequal power dynamic in these relationships. The severity of the issue necessitated the appointment of a victim's rights advocate in 2017, as well as the UN's trust fund in support of victims of sexual exploitation and abuse. Some impacted women in Haiti state that they have received minimal support from this trust fund, however. In an article written for CNN, one woman claimed that support received was not regular and only covered the cost of school for her twins, which was $500 a child for six years. So this is not an issue limited to Haiti, obviously. A study published by Cambridge University Press in 2016 reported that of 475 Liberian women between the ages of 18 and 30, more than 50% had been involved in transactional sex, and more than 75% of those had had those encounters with UN personnel. Wow, that is a lot. That is a lot. And it is contrary to their mandate to bring peace and stability. But regardless, the UN peacekeepers do mostly enjoy positive regard. This might have something to do with their impartiality. According to William G. Nomikos, Assistant Professor of Political Science at the University of California, Santa Barbara, because the UN peacekeepers are multinational peacekeepers, there is a tendency to perceive them as being impartial. They don't have the history or the strings that perhaps neighboring countries or colonial relations might have. Moreover, the fact that the UN does not allow for violence against citizens lends greater faith in the UN peacekeepers, and as such, their capability of limiting communal disputes among the local populations might be greater. Dr. Nomikos conducted an experiment in Mali. He found that the locals were more inclined to cooperate with the UN peacekeepers rather than the French peacekeepers, noting that they were perceived as impartial. One individual stated his preference for the UN peacekeepers because it's an international institution specifically created to maintain peace. That is exactly the intent, no? Yeah. And just last fall, Haitians protected their government's request for outside support in dealing with the country's violence. And last month, the UN Security Council approved to provide an international force to aid Haiti with an ever-growing problem with gang violence. Apparently, 200,000 residents have been displaced, 3,000 have been killed, and 1,500 have been kidnapped for ransom this year alone. Well, let's hope that this assistance will tip the scale in favor of the innocent civilian. Mm -hmm. But there are some lessons to learn. Yeah, and fast. In my humble opinion, the state of the world is desperately in need of proactive mediation to resolve conflict and effective peacekeeping. It's in the hands of our young people, Harris, and the UN thinks so as well. Good. Yeah, in 2015, the UN recognized the important role that youth could play in matters of international peace and security. The UN Security Council adopted Resolution 2250, which intended to give youth a greater voice in decision-making at the local, national, regional, and international levels, and to consider setting up mechanisms that would enable young people to participate meaningfully in the peace process. Greater female participation in peacekeeping has also been on the UN radar, as it has been historically low. Resolution 1325 was adopted by the UN Security Council in 2000 to address this issue. The number of female peacekeepers has been increasing slowly over the years, but women are still underrepresented, particularly in respect to military personnel. 
and women can play a valuable role in peacekeeping. We know that. There are situations when it is not appropriate or culturally acceptable for a male peacekeeper to intervene. Mm -hmm. Women are able to screen women when men may not be able to. Women in International Security states that knowing that peacekeepers are supposed to abide by the cultural sensitivity of not having males searching females, it is not uncommon for spoilers, also known as the opposing force, to have females carry illicit items under their clothing since the females will probably not be screened and searched. Wow, well that makes absolute sense. They also quoted Major General Kristen Lunn, who spoke about her experience in Afghanistan. She said, I had access to 100% of the population, not only 50%. She also noted that if a woman has been gang raped by men, she will most likely approach a woman in uniform rather than a man. And men that are raped will, I think, also approach a woman soldier rather than a man. Yeah, it's not something we think about, but I absolutely understand this. I would approach the situation in the same way. Mm-hmm. And according to Wise, the presence of female peacekeepers has resulted in fewer sexual exploitation allegations, fewer abuse allegations, and fewer misconduct complaints. Am I surprised? Well, you will also not be shocked to hear that female peacekeepers are perceived as being more apt at de-escalating a potentially violent scenario. Women are perceived as less threatening, so the issue doesn't tend to escalate. Well, isn't that exactly what you want when conflict is at its peak? It is. But not only this, Wise aptly points out that more female peacekeepers would offer a different perspective, most notably when it comes to issues which would involve women and girls. I would think that a variety of perspectives is always a good thing, and that a female perspective on issues pertaining to their own gender would be beneficial. According to the 2018 report of the Secretary General on Women and Peace and Security, between 1990 and 2017, women constituted only 2% mm-hmm. of mediators, 8% of negotiators, and 5% of witnesses and signatories in all major peace processes. But what about in the boardroom, or for that matter, in the home? There are many arguments in favor of increasing the number of women mediators in all manner of conflict resolution roles. It's difficult when gender equality is still not quite where it should be in most places, though, right, Harris? Yeah, perhaps not. But women have a soft way of doing hard things, as coined by Catherine Turner's article of the same title. And our guest today is living proof of this. Women bring something a little different to the table. Perhaps it's all that navigation of fights among the siblings growing up or as a parent. You learn a lot from mediating those tussles, don't you think? Right. The University of Nebraska-Lincoln described a conflict mediation model to mediate conflict among children, which frankly could probably be applied to any conflict. Mm -hmm. First, you have to clarify each child's perspective. See what the issues are and where their common interests might overlap, like Lynn said. Right. Then generate some alternatives. Can there be a different way to play, a different rule they can implement that makes everyone happy? Then agree on a solution. Once that's done, reinforce the problem-solving process. Share the message that the process of solving the problem is almost as important as the solution itself. Celebrate it so that they can learn and apply these skills in the future. Okay. Then, of course, follow through. Help the children carry out the agreed solution. And most important, Harris? Yeah. Announce that the conflict is over. Right. So everyone (laughs) is on the same page and doesn't try to resurrect what has already been agreed upon. Those are really good tips, Walker. They are. Kids, just as much as adults, become mired in their own perspective or their own narrative. It's uncomfortable to change and it can be difficult, but it is key to resolving conflict. 
In the words of Georg Lichtenberg, the 18th century German physicist, I cannot say whether things will get better if we change. What I can say is they must change if they are to get better. Thank you for joining us at At Home and Abroad with your host, Harrison Walker. If you enjoyed this episode, you would be a real gem if you would rate and review our show. It helps us to grow and expand our reach. You can also subscribe to follow us each week as we continue the conversation. Find us on Instagram at at Harrison Walker or visit us at www.athomeandabroadpodcast.com. We have great merch, just saying. And of course, we would love to hear from you. And for you truly dedicated fans who have listened all the way to the end of this episode, we offer exclusive interviews, outtakes, challenges, and more on our paid channel. Not even the cost of a latte once a month, depending on where you buy your coffee, of course. 